Welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Seth Williams, and I'm a veterinary student at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. So we've got another first on the Vet School Unleashed podcast today. Our special guest is a veterinary student. His name is Corey Regneris, uh, who's Skyping in from halfway around the globe, literally. Uh, Corey is a fifth-year veterinary student at Massey University in New Zealand. Corey is also the co-founder of the organization Vet Confessionals. Uh, If you follow any of the vet school or veterinary-related posts on social media, especially Instagram, you have most likely uh, encountered some of the Vet Confessionals posts, and they are great. Uh, I'm going to let Corey explain a little bit more about that awesome organization, but overall, Vet Confessionals is a space that provides veterinary students and professionals an outlet for emotion uh, and creativity. Today, we're going to get into Corey's journey uh, to vet school in New Zealand and how the New Zealand veterinary program is similar and how it's different to the programs here in the U.S. We're also going to get really deep into some more discussion about wellness, burnout, uh, emotional well-being of veterinary students and professionals. So welcome to the podcast, Corey. How's it going? Yeah, great. Thanks, Seth, for having me join you today. Well, thank you. I'm... I'm, uh, Corey, Corey actually reached out to me a, a, a month or so ago, um, and I'm really excited to, to, to have you on and, and share uh, your experience about vet school in New Zealand and, and, and really uh, talk more about uh, vet confessionals. Um, but first, so let's let's talk about you. So what was your journey to vet school and how did you end up in New Zealand? <laughs> yeah, so quite a, a kind of convoluted journey, I guess, along the way. Um, but I'm originally from Florida, so I was born and raised in West Palm. Um, and then decided to move up to Gainesville, uh, the University of Florida, where I did majority of my undergraduate degree, Bachelor of Science there. Um, in 2008, we hosted the APVMA Symposium um, at the University of Florida. So that was the first and only time it was actually hosted at UF. Uh, that was my project that I worked on. And at the time, we invited um, any of the other AVMA accredited universities including the international ones, to come over and just talk a little bit about their schools and introduce themselves to the students that were there. And one of those schools happened to be Massey University here in New Zealand. Um, They kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, would you ever consider Massey University in New Zealand? And I said, where's New Zealand? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Pretty typical. Um, But yeah, so from there, just Decided to, to look into it. Um, I was actually in my last semester, so semester two of my senior year at UF, um, when I decided to take the leap of faith and move across the world. Um, so I didn't actually complete my Bachelor of Science at UF um, and decided to come over to try to get in here at Massey. Um, they've got an international accreditation, um, both with the AVMA, the Royal Veterinary College in the UK, um, and the South African government as well. So they've got quite a few different accreditations, which was slightly appealing to me. So, so if you wanted to uh, practice outside of uh, the country of New Zealand, would you have to retake boards? Or because I know that since you said the AVMA uh, recognized it as an accredited program, um, it sounds like you would be able to pretty much go anywhere you would want. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's the same as graduating from any of the the U.S. schools. Um, so the only other thing that I need to do is then sit the NAVLE exam um, mm-hmm. in order to practice in the U.S. if I want to. Gotcha. Cool. So let's talk about the curriculum real quick because I, I, I find it really interesting the differences between 
all the schools in the U.S., uh, let alone uh, what the differences and similarities would be uh, in New Zealand. Um, so when we first uh, got on the call and before we started recording, um, I learned that your program is five years and not four, so that's definitely one big difference. Um, but in general, what's what's the setup in terms of uh, how many years you do in, in lecture-based learning versus clinical and uh, I guess the animals you work with and, and the main focuses there? Yeah, perfect. Um, so it is different uh, in regards to the actual program itself. So it is a five-year program, but the, the, the main difference is actually that you're not required to have an undergraduate degree before applying into vet school. So um, the Kiwi kids or the New Zealand students that are applying into the program are actually just graduating high school and getting into oh, the wow. program at 17, 18 years old. Yeah. Um, so, so quite a difference and that's why it's a five year degree. So you do, um, that first year. So basically the first semester, semester one of year one is a competitive semester in order to try to get in, of Mm -hmm. which they're required to take core papers, um, which is physics, chemistry, um, biology of cells and biology of animals. Um, Mm -hmm. and based on those four courses, that's the competitive entry basically into the vet school. So it's, it's up until this year has been solely based on academic entry requirements. Um, and I've just actually been involved in the last 12 months with helping them develop what they've called multiple mini interviews, which mm-hmm. is actually bringing in a non-academic component to the criteria to get into vet school. So, so that's, that's the big difference is that you don't have to have a undergraduate degree first. So while okay. it's a five year vet school program, it's not actually the eight schools that were the eight years that's required in the U S. Gotcha. So it, it is more or less an accelerated version of the U.S. style, if you want to call it that. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Cool. So then, how much clinical time do you get uh, while you're in school? Yeah. So um, I was lucky in the fact that when I started in 2013 and got into vet school here, they've had a complete curriculum revamp, um, which was in alignment with some of the AVMA requirements, um, and with that we've actually been very hands-on so starting first year um in semester two of the first year program we were already doing animal handling um so we had a companion animal component to that and a large animal component to that um basically from year one and that Uh kind of continued all the way through the course um we started getting actual hands-on surgical experience in um, our fourth year um and then this last year yeah, it's, it's quite, um, it's actually been really good to be so hands-on with this degree. Um, and then this last uh-huh. year, which is my fifth and final year, is solely based around um, clinical rotations. So I've only got two weeks of lecture out of the entire year. Um, and Terrific. Yeah, yeah. So it's been good. Good. Um, so I know you're graduating soon. Is it still, is, is May the graduation month down there? Um, it is the graduation month, but the school years are opposite. So semester one here actually just started in January, um, and we end in November. So we actually finish the course in November, but don't graduate until May. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So, um, I know you've been probably asked this a lot, but, uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask what, uh, what are your plans for after vet school? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, one of those things that actually becomes a scary reality at this time in the degree, I think. Um, but yeah, my intentions is to stay here, um, in New Zealand and I'd, I'd like to practice. I'd really like to go into a mixed animal practice would be, um, my ideal job. Really. I enjoy, I was a small animal vet tech in the States before I came over here. 
Um, so I really mm-hmm. kind of have that grounding. But uh, New Zealand is a very rural country. Uh, their sole economic drivers are based around the dairy industry um, and the sheep and beef market. So I also have mm-hmm. gotten very involved with that too. So Cool. And then in terms of companion animal, what is the, the climate down there, uh, you know, in relation to the U.S. where we've seen such a big increase in the the way we treat our dogs and cats in terms of mem- being members of the family and, and the amount of care that we have uh, begun to give them. It's, it's very much uh, becoming more of them uh, being treated like, like human patients, which I think is great for our profession and, and great for, for their care, obviously. What's the, what's the climate down there in terms of uh, the New Zealand uh, community's relation with their small animals or their companion animals? Absolutely. Yeah, they, I mean, people are treating their pets as family members here too, which is great. Um, There's definitely that similarity. There's, again, like I said, there's a big rural component here. So Mm -hmm. one of the things is um, they're not just family members, but some of these are actually work employees. So the working dogs that are out on these massive sheep stations, um, they couldn't get the job done without their dogs. So we see a lot of working dogs come through the small animal clinic here that People will spend, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars on working everything they can to get them back and established um, to be working dogs. Or even if they've done good time as a working dog and can't continue to be one, they absolutely be willing to to fork out the cash in order to make sure that those animals have the best life possible. Um, so I definitely think it's yeah, it's very similar to the U.S. in that um, in that regard. Um, we've had just in the last couple of years, pet insurance has finally started hitting the ground running here, which is been a great kind of aspect. So, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, I think they're, they're still fighting an uphill battle here. Uh, definitely we're talking a lot about insurance a lot more. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to see how it's going to go in the U S over the next, let's say decade. Uh, just cause I think it's so expensive right now, but, uh, who knows what's going to happen, but that's cool to hear that, that it's, it's kind of catching on down there. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And starting to make a bit of a difference, which is good as well. Good. Uh, and then the other thing we were talking about before uh, we started recording, which I find totally awesome, is that even though you've been in New Zealand for for coming up on eight years, you've got quite the New Zealand <laughs> accent. So that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. Never would have known you were a uh, a U.S. native. <laughs> yeah, my family reckons I sound like a foreigner now, um, and I, right. <laughs> I always get the question around here where I'm from. So cool. That's awesome. All right, so let's talk about Vet Confessionals because uh, it, it's such an awesome organization. Would you mind uh, just sharing a bit about about what the organization's mission is and, and what you guys are doing? Absolutely. Yeah, so Vet Confessionals, um, we decided to start here at Massey. So one of my other colleagues who graduated two years ago now, um, Dr. Halal Dogan, who is actually at the NAVC conference um, this week with Vet Confessionals, she kind of came to me with the original idea of what she wanted to do. And it was all kind of based around um, the post secret concept and, and thought that mm-hmm. we would, it would be an interesting way to talk about some of these issues, raise some of these concerns within the veterinary profession, but also provide that kind of outlet um, for veterinary students. So when we started, it was just based at Massey University and we had kind of an intranet program that we were using here on campus. Um, so all of the veterinary and the vet tech students were able to be part of that and could make submissions and then we'd upload it onto our intranet website and that could be viewed from there. Um, the main focus, I guess, behind it was, well, kind of multifaceted, but one of the things was that we found um, 
which is what PostSecret did, was getting something off your chest is a huge kind of portion of it. We, especially as vet students and, and vets in our careers, tend to have these problems that we don't ever want to talk about. We internalize them. Mm -hmm. We don't want to discuss it. We don't want to admit fault is really kind of what it comes down to. Um, and and that's, that's that first step. So getting it out there. The other thing was is we made it anonymous so that there wasn't a face to a name. So it did kind of remove that first step, that first barrier for somebody to consider stepping out and actually talking about something that was bothering them. Um, then from there, even more than that is, is once you put it out onto a platform where other people can read, read it, um, they can interact with it. And maybe there's somebody that's sitting out there that's going, oh gosh, you know, it's not just me that feels that way. And now we've pulled yet another barrier down. So somebody else might then be willing to kind of reach out and get some help as well. Um, so that was the main aspects of it. And then we also wanted to keep it a bit fun and creative. So that's why we had our, our hard card postcards, um, mm -hmm. which is what's being used at the NAVC conference this week. We like to kind of include some of that creativity and design component as well as a, as a stress relief, if you like. So That's great. Um, so when did you all launch this uh, on an international scale? Yeah, so we decided to just see if we could get it to work here in New Zealand, um, and we did that. So that was um, that was in 2014, and we ran it for a year just on the campus. And then in 2015, we decided to kind of reach out a little bit further, and that's when we um, decided to take the shift from an intranet to an internet, and we mm -hmm. developed the Vet Confessionals website. Um, and also the Vet Confessionals Facebook page. Um, and then from there, we obviously delved into Twitter and Instagram and things as well. So, Great. Um, yeah, I, you know, the more and more I talk with veterinary students and other professionals, you know, be it technicians or uh, veterinarians, it's so apparent that wellness is such a big issue and that previously people were, were pretty afraid to talk about it. So it's it's really cool to hear that that you've created a, an outlet for it and uh, an arena where we could kind of be open about it and, and just talk. What uh, impact have you seen uh, since Vet Confessionals has uh, been launched and become so successful in terms of how people are dealing with their wellness and, and improving their life and uh, just becoming uh, more grounded, more uh, healthy people while they're in this profession? Yeah, it's, it's been quite interesting. Um, when we first started up the, the website internationally, um, you know, obviously what we were trying to do was bring some of these things to the fore light, but we also wanted it to be a bit lighthearted and fun, um, was when it first started, we were getting all these kind of really deep, kind of dark confessions, and, and mm -hmm. it, um, it spread the whole industry. I mean, it looked like veterinarians across, you know, on a global scale were just miserable. But um, what I thought was quite interesting with the website is, what we've done is allowed for people to make comments back on those. And as kind of more and more negative things kept creeping in, well, I won't call them negative, I'll call them, I guess, reality. Um, right. But as more of those things started creeping in, we actually started regulating ourselves. So more people started putting in comments and they became supportive and they became um, collaborative. You know, we've been there, don't worry about it. It does get better. Um, try this. These are the things that worked for me. Don't consider giving up on the profession. Just find another avenue on how to use mm -hmm. those skills and things. And and that, I think, has been one of the, the greatest things about this whole project and something that we didn't actually control but just provided that platform for and, and watched it unveil, um, which has been great to see. That's great. Yeah, I, I think we've 
we've seen, especially in the veterinary schools, that at least for the most part, the the communities amongst the the classes and amongst the whole school is so supportive. Um, so it's really nice to hear that, given the the space to do it, that veterinary professionals around the world are willing to support everybody. And uh, and since we are such compassionate people as a whole, um, I think it's great that you've created a space where we can enter more of these dialogues and and uh, and not be afraid to talk about it and not be afraid to to hear feedback and from from other people. So it's great. What if you could you know pinpoint uh, a couple things that are uh, challenges to the industry right now? What would you say are the biggest issues uh, you would say facing wellness and well being amongst our our profession? Um, yeah, that's a good question, and that's uh, obviously something that's being kind of researched around the globe as well. Um, I mean, if you look at some of the statistics about depression and suicide in the industry, and and what those kind of key drivers are. Um, a lot of them are not actually necessarily directly associated to the veterinary career itself, um, but a lot of those outside extenuating circumstances. Finances tends to be one of those. Personal mm-hmm. relationships tend to be another. Um, I mean, absolutely, from a U.S. perspective, I can sit back and look at, at student loans and say that, gosh, you know, that's a, a huge driver to, to stress. And it's all these outside stresses that really kind of contribute to it. I think the U.S. has a um, the the whole schooling system in the U.S. and the amount of debt that veterinary students walk out with in this day and age is is you know ludicrous. Really, um, right. I talked to a couple of the clinicians here that have been at Massey for years that went through the veterinary program. They were actually paid to go to vet school. You know, there wasn't a tuition. Wow. Um, they were actually given a stipend to study for vet school, and and we've gone a complete one eighty and then some you know, from that here. Um, the, wow. the students that come to Massey graduate with a very similar amount of debt that you'd graduate with in the U.S. Um, and yeah, that's to me, you know, if you're above that kind of $150,000, $200,000 mark, I mean, that's a deposit on a house and, and a life really. Um, and we're right. expected to, to pay that back off. And that, that's a huge stressing component to it. And there's no simple fix to it, but it's something that we as an industry need to start talking about and figuring out if there's other things that we can do to help that. Absolutely. Um, and then in terms of, because uh, I know one of the big buzzwords going on right now is compassion fatigue and burnout. What have you uh, seen from these confessions and, and what feedback have you seen in, in response to it about combating that aspect? And again, I, and I, I would agree that a lot of these issues that we're facing they may not be, or rather, they probably are not solely veterinary related. I think it's it's a struggle that a lot of prof- professions have uh, in this day and age. But I know, especially with compassion fatigue and burnout, uh, we have a lot more opportunity to be affected by that. So, what have you seen in terms of that aspect of uh, of the confessions? Yeah, I, I mean, that's something that we're we're never going to be able to escape. Um, all we can do is is kind of start to be able to identify it and and work from there. Um, compassion fatigue is kind of a, a key interest point of mine. And one of the nice things that Massey's done here is we actually have um, a wellness program and we have wellness Wednesdays. So every Wednesday throughout the degree, somebody comes in and gives a talk about wellness, whether that be on mm. compassion fatigue or um, mindfulness is another big subject that's been pushed around here quite a bit. And trying to work on those types of components in order to build more resilient vet students. Um, and then in turn, more resilient vets coming out of the practice, which has been, been a great kind of initiative that Massey's done. Um, 
and with that, I actually gave a bit of a, a talk one day. Um, I was asked to speak on compassion fatigue, and and it is it's it's a key driver. But the big thing is is being able to focus and actually pick up when it's happening, and not just with yourself, but mm -hmm. with others. So, I found personally, the more that I've kind of learned about being able to identify compassion fatigue with others, I've been able to learn kind of more about myself and when those things are coming in. Um, I mean, euthanasias are, are always a hard thing within the profession. We, we mm -hmm. hate dealing with it. Um, you know, being on clinics this last week, I've had a few patients of mine that were very intensive cases that unfortunately didn't pull through um, and we had mm -hmm. to make those decisions. So uh, now that I'm in my final year, I'm, I'm definitely, um, definitely understanding compassion fatigue as you get long hours and, and things like that. But um, yeah, yeah, I think it's an important aspect and it's something that we just need to be able to one, recognize and then two, kind of move on from there and, and what do we need to do? And it all comes back to that work-life balance and making sure that you have kind of a strong support network around you. Right. So going back to compassion fatigue, what do you do personally to to minimize that in your life. Um, I, that's one of my biggest fears when I go out into practice and uh, both being uh, desensitized to things like euthanasia, things like um, just just terrible struggles with the patient or with the client. Um, so yeah, so desensitization, desensitization and then also just the normal, which is just being um, the incredibly sad reality of our profession, which is euthanasia. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's just one of the biggest, uh, biggest fears that I have going out. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, um, it's, it's, that's a hard question. Um, I, I deal with it. I, I guess if you go kind of back to it, I, I worked with a, a vet that I respected for a number of years in the U.S. And they sat down and told me one day, you know, I got kind of really upset about euthanasias and was like, you know, how do you just keep doing this? And, um, and he told me that the day that you stop caring about euthanasias is the day that you should stop being a vet. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's true. If, if we don't have that empathy and that compassion for our patients and our clients, um, it removes what we do. Um, so while it's, you know, you don't want to completely desensitize yourself to it, because um, I think you'd remove that all, you do have to just be able to, to kind of tone it down. I mean, I've got a lovely pet at home. Um, if I've had a rough day, at uni, I come home and give my dog cuddles. Um, you know, it's, it's right. one of those things I've got a supportive partner. Um, and I'm able to come home and actually have conversations about those things. I think the biggest thing is, is not bottling it up and actually being able to talk about it. Um, and, and I, I personally enjoy doing volunteer work and, and getting out and involved in the community. And that's probably where that's my own personal thing that I've found that works for me to drive mm -hmm. away some of that compassion fatigue is, um, yeah, just getting back out and giving back to the community to help support it. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I, I'm hearing a, an underlying theme, which uh, coming out of vet confessionals, at least their mission, and also what you just said about how you handle uh, some of these these mental health slash wellness issues, which is just to talk about it. Uh, and I think, especially amongst our high achieving, typically high achieving, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, psyches, or not psyches, but uh, just personalities, just because we got we got to this point in vet school and and uh, how demanding it is. I think our sometimes our egos get in the way, and I, and I've seen it especially with uh, people that are are performing less than they would like in terms of grades. Um, they don't want to admit to it, or they don't want to reach out for help because uh, they haven't had to do that before. 
Um, and I think um, that that can get us into a lot of trouble. So it's great to hear that uh, the Vet Confessionals is, again, providing a place for that, but but you just hit it home too, that how important it is to, to talk about it. Um, with that being said, we've obviously addressed that there are plenty of issues that we could be talking about in terms of wellness and self-care. What t- things have you seen uh, from your experience and from what the feedback you've gotten via Vet Confessionals about what we can be doing as students and also as, uh, as veterinarians to, uh, to improve our, our, our well-being? Yeah. Um, so one of the things, kind of my personal um, opinions with the Vet Confessionals project and what we've done is obviously we're pushing it for the veterinarians that have already graduate, um, graduated. Um, my big thing too is, is to make sure that we're bringing it back down to the student level because like you said, we start at that competitive nature from the very beginning um, and we start not talking about our problems from the very beginning. So my big focus is to always keep pushing it back on to the veterinary students as well. You know, we need to be including all the students in those conversations and not just um, looking at them once they've graduated and, and try to figure out how we can help put a Band-Aid on it. You know, we've had a shift in the profession. We're no longer the um, ambulatory service, you know, at the bottom of the hill. We mm-hmm. are trying to be at the top of the hill, preventing the problems coming along. And I think that has to come back into the student perspective um, from there. And it's those kind of learned behaviors and that reinforcement that we get through vet school that's that's really important. Um, yeah, so going back to, I guess, what the, um, the profession and some of the things that have come through vet confessionals in particular has been based around long, hour, long hours, poor salaries, not being compensated for the work life. Um, and and that's, that's probably one of the big drivers that we've seen and, and common themes that has come through the vet confessionals project. So it is one of those conversations that I guess we as vet students going out and being employed need to be asking our employers of um, what are our new jobs going to do to help support us along the way. You know, we've got a huge learning curve when we graduate, stepping out into the reality of becoming a vet. Mm-hmm. Um, we go from that. There's always somebody there to hold us up um, while we're in the veterinary curriculum and somebody to lean on if we get too overwhelmed. But then once we're out in the real world, um, being vets on our own, we've no longer got that kind of umbilical cord, if you like. Um, and I think that when we start looking for jobs, we need to be having those conversations with employers. What is it that you guys can provide for me as a new graduate? Where are the support networks? Where are the checks and balances? Who can I reach out to in order to um, have conversations if I get stuck? Is there a mentor program that's available in the local area, either by the regional branch of your veterinary council or um, actually maybe even within the practice? But sometimes it's also important to have somebody outside of the practice that you can have conversations with that you might not feel comfortable speaking to somebody in the practice with. And I think that's probably a, a big thing to, if we can set that mindset as new graduates, that um, this is what we're expecting as new graduates, then hopefully it'll kind of dovetail from there. Yeah, what are your thoughts on incorporating more counseling help or more uh, spaces to talk in uh, in vet school and also in the profession? You know, just uh, bringing in, like you said, mentors or bringing in uh, a therapist or someone just to to provide a sounding board and to provide feedback on some of these issues um, into vet school or into into the workplace. Yeah, I, I think it's a great idea. You know, there are some there are some colleges across the U.S. now that have. Um, that have psychologists actually on staff within the veterinary schools, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a, a great initiative. 
And one of the things that I've been speaking to um, the dean and a couple of the people here at Massey is, is how can we better incorporate um, kind of that mental checkup? And I think it would be a great idea that if we had at least once a year, everybody was required to have a quick sit down with one of the therapists here and just have a check in. How are you going? Right. What are you doing? And start talking about it. And I think that would also create a bit more of a norm to it. I think we now still sit as a as an overall population, not even just within the vet profession. But it, to go to a counselor, again, it goes back to that kind of concept of admitting defeat or admitting that there's something wrong. And there isn't anything wrong. You know, we are in a stressful environment. We have these stresses that are there. And the counselors are there to help provide coping mechanisms. They're not there to point fingers and point blame and say that there's something wrong. And I think that would be a good thing to start incorporating into our system is We've talked about, again, like I said, having kind of a, a checkup once a year as you're going through the vet school, see how things are going, just talk to it and add a bit of normality around it so that when you are out in the profession, you don't mind reaching out for help. And a good mentor program is going to be the other thing I've been trying to establish here at Massey too, um, kind of an internal, just a peer mentoring program um, and setting up some professional training so that we actually have people and students that are around. So again, you don't necessarily have to reach out to a true professional, um, you can reach out to one of your peers and just have a conversation and somebody else who's sitting in exactly the same shoes that you are and can can really empathize with what's going on. Right. And, I, and I'm proud to say that Mizzou is one of those schools here in the U.S. that does have a psychologist on staff, uh, which I think is fantastic. The only feedback that I would have for how it's set up right now with Mizzou is that it seems to be more of a, a reactive uh, type of system, whereas uh, we know that uh, that he is there and and people will go and talk to him whenever they have something to talk about. Uh, but I think it would be great, like you said, to have uh, maybe not require check-ins, but, but have more proactive uh, a view on it. So where we would have, uh, like you said, like a Wellness Wednesday type of thing or, or, or a once-a-month session where he would come to us, uh, he or she, whatever, wherever school or, or organization you're at, uh, where we would uh, just talk about things on a proactive level rather than than coming to him or her on a reactive level. Um, another idea that I just had, uh, you know, talking about this with you, um, and this all stems from my aspirations to become a practice owner, uh, just with my my business background and and management um, background, and just how I how I think about. Um, the team, I think it would be cool to maybe even hire on a a counselor to come in once a month to your practice. Um, again, more of the proactive level thinking there where, uh, you know, they would spend an hour to a month at the clinic uh, and just provide a uh, more or less a counseling service. Um, so essentially what you'd be doing as the owner would be um, more or less providing that, that perk, if you will, of... Uh, of counseling services in, in compensation. So I know that that's probably not being done a whole lot of places. I know that the, the clinic that I shadowed for the most of my small animal experience before vet school, they had a life coach come in. Uh, I think it was once a week actually. And they just, they did some of these sit down conversations, just more coping mechanisms and, and providing a sounding board, like, like we're talking about here. But, uh, but no, I really, really like what you said and, and what we're talking about now about, uh, incorporating more of this talking and, and, and that it's okay to talk and that we should be talking and that rather it's probably not okay <laughs> to not talk. Uh, that's when we get into a trouble, into trouble. So I think that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 
with just you talking about your aspirations there and, and what you're looking at, there was another podcast I was listening to and the Dove Lewis Association based out of Oregon actually have a psychologist on team um, that, that deals with all their clinical staff, which I think was a great mm-hmm. endeavor that they've got. Um, and the other thing that they do here at Massey is not only the Wellness Wednesdays, but built into the curriculum, we have a course called Professional Studies. Mm-hmm. And in that Professional Studies course, we actually have one of the counselors that comes in and talks to us. So we've got lectures on compassion p- fatigue, lectures on um, grief and, and coping mechanisms, lectures on how to deal with clients during euthanasia and end-of-life decisions um, and management of patients, um, as well as even, you know, we had in our first year a booked-out time that we all went and played a bit of sport. Um, you know, we had a basketball game that we had uh, where we all wore heart monitors so that we could see where our, our heart rates were going and, and yeah. um, just had a bit of a questionnaire afterwards about how we felt about life after those physical activities. And um, yeah, it was great. They really tried to pull it in. So I think it's there. And again, with what you were saying about what you'd like to be able to have in your practice when you owned it, um, it's those types of things that if we start asking about them now, um, you know, they'll no longer be really perks, as you say, they'll become normal practice. And I think right. that that's something right. we should right. endeavor for. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Let's talk about briefly, uh, work-life balance. Cause you brought that up previ- uh, a little bit earlier. And, uh, I was at my States at Missouri's, uh, VMA convention a couple weeks ago and we had a, a student and new graduate panel. And this was, the the main topic of discussion and i was amazed to to hear that there was such a wide variety of um of paradigms in terms of what the proper work life balance is and and what the improper uh balance is and and what i further realized that there's no right answer um but i wanted to hear your take on what things that we could be looking out for now before we actually get into the profession to to make sure we're not going to get ourselves into trouble and some things that we could do proactively now to get ourselves into the habit of creating a good work-life balance. But um, So that's, that's the first question. But I guess before you answer that, what is your definition of, of uh, work-life balance? Because I know that there's plenty of interpretations of that. Uh, that's, that's a good question. I don't think I've had to come up with my own definition <laughs> before. Um, I mean, I guess in theory, the the way that I kind of perceive what work-life balance is, is there has to be that that healthy level um, for you. We all have a tendency of getting very involved because we're obviously passionate about what we do and we want to be there and we want to help. Um, but I think it's good that we can use kind of our, our friends and our relationships as that kind of check balance. You know, mm-hmm. if you've got friends that you haven't seen in three, four months or if you're too busy to reply to a text message to your best mate, um, or if you've got a, a partner that you know you guys haven't been out on a date in the last three four weeks, you know you might need to start considering where your your kind of levels are sitting, um, how much involvement you've had, and uh, I think it's it's being happy in yourself, but also those that are around you and those that are most important to you. I th- I think that should probably be included in your work life balance, um, right? If that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and as for, I guess, what we can can do, especially as students for work-life balance, uh, like I said, my biggest thing is, is that I think that we reinforce bad behaviors at a very early start in our career while we're uh-huh. in vet school. Um, if we are spending, you know, 
40 hours a week in lectures and then spending another 20 hours a week trying to do readings. And then to be fair, you know, we're all on different levels. Some of us have to do extra. If you're doing nothing but sitting inside, studying for vet school exams um, and missing life go by throughout vet school, if the four years has been, you know, nothing but textbooks and computer screens, um, I think that we're setting ourselves up for, for a disaster in the future. Uh, and one of the biggest things that we talked about at that that panel was that our profession, well, rather, this was the one of the debates, is, is our profession one of those that you can have a, a clear divide between work life and personal life? Because, um, you know, in terms of just the the nature of the work with being a medical provider for our our pets and for our, our, our food animals and for our working animals, that it's really difficult to to just say, I'm off the clock. Um, we, and in some, t- in some terms, you could say that uh, we're always on call. Um, so uh, what's your take on that? I mean, are we always on call? And, 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 and I think that, like what you said, we're uh, learning these bad behaviors um, early in, in our careers where we may think it's, it's not okay to stop working. Uh, rather, we should be working all the time. And, and for me, that I know that's one of my struggles too, because um, I just love to work. I think that's that's one of my uh, strengths and one of my flaws too. Uh, you could probably uh, get a uh, get an agreement from that from my wife, because uh, I'm, I'm just always working. And I, but I love to do it. And that's what I'm most excited about. Or one of the things I'm most excited about is just to get out there and work. I, I want to work so much, but I know that, that that could set me up for for some trouble. Um so, so yeah, sorry, that, that was a tangent. But going back to my, my first question, which is, what are your thoughts on, on what type of ties that we can cut between work and between not working? Is that something that us as veterinarians can afford to do? Is that something that our profession uh, can allow for? Yeah, and that's, that's actually a, uh, that's a really good question and, and one of the things that I thought kind of quite a lot about as well. Um, I mean, I can go back to, I was on a clinic placement doing some uh, mixed animal practice with a vet clinic here in New Zealand. Um, and I was just there observing as a student and being involved with consults and, and stuff like that. And um, I just went out to the local supermarket to go grab something for dinner that night um, and happened to run into a, a kid that was there and goes, oh, you know, you were looking after Fluffy today and oh, mm-hmm. what do you think is going on? And it's, um, you know, that's that's a big reality to our, our career is people no longer view, I guess the public no longer view the veterinary clinic as the only place to seek veterinary advice. Um, mm. If we run into them in a supermarket or we run into somebody at the movie theater, they're absolutely going to ask you for advice about their pet. Um, you know, our friends are going to do that. Our family members are going to do that. We're, I mean, I remember getting a phone call from my dad. It was three o'clock in the morning here. My dog was seizuring at home and he rang me. I'm like, why don't you ring your right. vet that's there, but um, nice. that's kind of we are always on that. And can we afford to kind of make that delineation that um, you need to be in the veterinary clinic, you know, to have these conversations with me? I don't know that we can afford that um, as an industry. To be honest, um, it's hard. One of the somebody that I was speaking with here was talking about what do you do when you're approached um, in regards to just getting out veterinary advice in public and. They say they like to defer it to kind of a third person where you're not giving mm-hmm. direct advice about their pet, but said, 
oh, if I had a pet that was in a similar situation, you know, I would think about this, that, and the other. So it would be a great idea if we were able to get Fluffy into the clinic um, to have a look. And it acknowledged that individual's concerns about their pet at the time without providing any direct advice, but also encouraged them to come back to the vet clinic. And I think it did set it if you think about it, it does set a little bit of a boundary there that I'm willing to have this conversation with you, but we really need to work it up in the clinic. So, so let's make an appointment and you can come see me next week. Um, and we can have a chat about that. So. Right. And, and I wonder what the, what the thought on this topic is in the human medical side. I know mm-hmm. that at least with, with the, the MDs that I know, um, just from growing up and, and friends of mine now that are, that are physicians, that it's almost seems like a cultural faux pas to ask uh, a physician friend or your own physician anything that is medically related in the in the or rather outside the uh, outside the doctor's office. Hmm. Um, so I, 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 I'm just thinking about that out loud. I don't know what that what that thought is. Do you do you happen to know what what MDs think about this? Yeah, no, I, and I think you're right. It's probably yeah. I mean, I. Personally, I can't imagine, you know, calling up my doctor after hours and asking for, um, you know, why I've got a rash on my calf. Um, (laughs) But it's, um, yeah, we definitely, that's something that wouldn't be unexpected in the veterinary profession. And I guess that's part of our our culture, I guess, maybe even driving all the way back to the fact that we technically undercharge for our services. I mean, free advice outside of the office is not bringing any income through the business. So, yeah, it's. Um, I'm not really sure, but you're right. There's definitely a, a faux pas around ringing your your doctor. So it's. I guess it's a cultural thing that we'll have to work for. And kind of going back to insurance that I spoke about before, it's some of these things that are slowly changing, and times will change. Um, but yeah, it would it would be interesting to see if there could ever be a cultural shift to not expect to get free advice from your veterinarian. Right, and, and I and I wonder too if just the way that medicine has gone over the past, let's say, 100 years, that that veterinary medicine is, you know, maybe, uh, I'm just throwing this number out, maybe 25 years behind the the medical profession where maybe if if, uh, if we've been doing this talk uh, 20, 30 years ago, we may be saying that it was okay to talk to your physician outside the office. I mean, back, you know, in, in you know, the early 1900s, even, even the mid-1900s, uh, you know, doctors were coming into your into your home to do your medical work and things like that, which um, you know, sometimes that still happens in, in the veterinary field. But, um, but I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, th- I think eventually we may catch up with, with that social norm where the, where the cultural normal to, to treat veterinarians more like, uh, more like their animal physicians rather than uh, kind of Dr. So-and-so who, who treats fluffy and loves animals and you can, you can pretty much ask them whatever you want. I think that that too that uh, that thought or that that paradigm about what the veterinarian is um, can get us into trouble too in terms of how much we're willing to give to our clients outside the doctor's office. Yeah, no, um, no, I think I do agree though. Yeah, it would be interesting to see um, kind of how how things change. But yeah, it um, you're right. Yeah, however many years ago it might have been completely different for the medical profession, but um, it just goes back to that that culture, um, around veterinarians. So, so yeah, all of, all of this discussion about the work-life balance, at least what we're talking about right now, all stemmed from a tweet that, uh, we had talked about at school and also at this convention, uh, that comes from, 
the super vet, which uh, is a veterinarian that's out of England. His name is uh, Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick. And he had a tweet a few months ago that stirred some controversy. Um, actually, it was just about a month and a half ago. Uh, and here's the tweet. It says, the patient always comes first, and that may be at the cost of your own personal life. If you aren't prepared for that, it's not a vocation, it's a job. Um, so I think what, uh, and there have been plenty and plenty of, uh, of reactions to this on the internet, so I encourage you all to, uh, to go and, and, and check this, this out. Um, but this is kind of why I wanted to talk about it with you, is that it seems to, to SuperVet here that, that, uh, that the patient always comes first. Um, no matter what, even at the cost of your own personal life. So uh, again, I think that that can just tie off this topic. But um, but again, plenty of differences of opinion there. Um, some people will will agree with him, and, and a lot of people did at this panel that I was on. Uh, but especially a lot of the younger generation, a lot of the new grads um, didn't. They they thought that that nothing should come at the expense of your own personal life. And I'm not saying that uh, that our profession should completely abolish, uh, your well-being and, and your personal, personal well-being. But, uh, uh, I think what I found is that there is a, a big gray area here. There's no right or wrong answer. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely say, yeah, you can, can take that statement and, and either challenge it, but more than anything, just, just reflect on what it means to you. I mean, like you said, sounds like you and I are very similar in the fact that, um, we both enjoy working and, and that is obviously kind of a big aspect of, of who we are and our personal identity um, and one of our strengths, but also one of our weaknesses. And I, um, yeah, I think you'd have to really kind of look at that and, and consider. But like you said, probably most of the new graduates were considering whether or not that was um, a reality. But that's stemming because of the fact that, you know, we are probably having these conversations a bit more more frequently about what good work-life balance should be. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it would be an individual thing, but definitely reflecting on it and seeing how it fits into your own personal life would be um, a worthwhile, yeah, worthwhile tweet to consider, I guess. Right, right. All right. So to wrap up this awesome conversation, uh, Corey, can you tell us where we can find more information about Vet Confessionals? For sure. Yeah. So we've got um, a website set up. So that's www.vetconfessionals.com. Uh, you can go there, check out what our recent submissions have been. There's a bit of an about us there as well that talks about kind of the, the motivations of the project and, and who's involved with it. And you can meet the rest of the team, the other students that I work with here at Massey, uh, as well as get involved and, and reply back to some of those comments, which we would greatly appreciate people getting involved with. Um, and then we've also got the Facebook page. So you can find us at Vet Confessionals Project on Facebook um, and Vet Confession. I think it's just under Vet Confessionals for Twitter and Instagram as well. Great. Yeah, and I, I highly encourage everyone out there to to follow them on, on social media, but also to to check out some of the other um, streams that are vet school related. So if you're on uh, Twitter or Instagram especially, um, you know, use hashtags like uh, vet med or vet school um, veterinary. I mean, there's the, the, the list is endless, but there's tons of great stuff on there. Um, so you'll find a lot of the confessionals. I post some, a few things, but a lot of really, um, cool posters out there, both veterinarians and, and vet students alike. So it gets you a really good insight on what's going on out there and, and the differences between people's experiences. Um, all right. So, uh, last question for you. What is New Zealand like? What's uh, I, I, it sounds like a quite the 
luxurious tropical beach oasis. But uh, uh, what's life been like down there for you? And how's it, uh, how's it impacted your vet school career, your veterinary career? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've obviously fallen in love with the place um, now that I've, I've been here for eight years. Um, but yeah, it, it's an amazing place, especially I think if we go back to talking about what work-life balance is, is you can definitely have a great work-life balance here while you're going through vet school. Um, it's a small enough place that you can spend an hour's drive and, and be skiing at the top of the slopes, or we've got um, an alpine club here that does some amazing rock climbing and glacier climbing and all sorts, um, or alternatively drive the other direction an hour and a half and you can be on the beach wow. um, or visiting some amazing waterfalls or active volcano sites. It's, um, yeah, it's just, just a, an extremely memorable place. That's for that's sure. That's great. And it's, it's summer down there right now for you, right? Uh, it's supposed to be summer okay. right now. Uh, we've had quite a weird, um, quite a weird season lately, but, uh, yeah, the last three days has been very summery. So I'll, I'll call it summer now. Gotcha. Very <laughs> cool. All right. Um, and the last thing I want to do, which I've been doing the last couple of episodes is three rapid fire questions. Okay. You ready? Yep. All right. Uh, what is your favorite color? Uh, my favorite color is probably, actually, it's probably orange now. Okay. Uh, and if you could be any animal, what would you be? <laughs> um, I would probably be a llama. That's just with a recent fascination with my own herd of llamas that I've got now, but I find them very interesting creatures. Good answer. Uh, and uh, last one, if you were not a veterinarian, what would you be doing? Ah, um, what would I be doing? To be honest, I'd really enjoy doing some traveling. So maybe if I, I could be one of those kind of travel hosts and um, one of the like tiki tours or the con tours that you can do with a bunch of people that sound quite fascinating as well. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Corey, for, for joining me today. I hope you had as much fun as I did. I think we talked about some great stuff. So thank you so, so much. Yeah, no, thanks for, um, yeah, doing this and setting it up and continuing these conversations. But yeah, I think it's been, been a great conversation today. Cheers for that. Thanks. Um, yeah. And, uh, for y'all listening, please be sure to, to check out Vet Confessionals uh, on their website, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, everything. Um, tons of great stuff and, and more discussion about uh, everything we talked about today and and more. So, uh, so thank you. Thanks again, Corey. Perfect. Thanks, Seth. All right. So once more, I want to say a huge thank you to Corey Regneris for joining me on the podcast today. Please be sure and check out uh, more on Vet Confessionals uh, on their website and on social media. Uh, again, tons of great stuff. And thank you so much for listening to the Vet School Unleashed podcast. For more resources and information about the podcast, you can check us out online at www.vetschoolunleashed.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Feel free to reach out to me via Twitter or Instagram or email me at seth at vetschoolunleashed.com with any suggestions or topics you'd like to hear about, or even reach out to me if you'd want to be on the podcast yourself and share some insight of your own. And if you feel so inclined, please don't hesitate to leave us a review on iTunes. I would really appreciate it. Thank you again, and we will talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed, dissecting the DVM. DVM.